Um, I think once we get going, we'll find uh, you and I could probably chat for a couple of years. <laughs> Always. So, if we only had a pizza here to share. Oh well, we'll talk about. I made one last night on purpose. Oh. <clears throat> I'm not gonna thing in my throat. I um. So we'll talk about that when we get in there. But I made it last night in a cast iron pan because that's what I had. Oh my god, family! They would. <laughs> They love that. And I make pizza a lot, but I use it on the screen. Yeah. And and it's, you know, pizza on the screen, it's there's nothing wrong with it. If you make a good crust, it's fine. Yeah. It it's 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 a way you can respond quickly to feeding people. Whereas the tray pizza <laughs> you get you gotta be a little bit more planning. But well, but also with the the advantage of baking in the pan, of course, is you get that oil frying the bottom yeah. of your crust, oh, which man. is part of the transcendent quality. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 38. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head on over to my podcasts page culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. And there you can click the link to join my Eating Liberty Facebook group. You can also follow me on Minds and Bitbacker.io and Gab and Twitter, as well as subscribe to my YouTube cooking show. Well, you know, so to speak. Uh, a few more items. Please do continue to support the show with the links on the podcast's page, also with your patronage at, well, Patreon, Bitcoin, and PayPal. Also, when you listen to the show on your favorite podcatcher, rate the show, and please do give a positive review. Those quick steps help move the show up and let more people find it. And the more people who find it are the more people who get cooking. You can also support the show and make a yummy treat for yourself by picking up my Muffins e-cookbook. Just leave me your email address and download the book, and for that, I'll send you a couple of emails a week or so. As school is winding down, it is almost certain the kids will read next to nothing, or read something so far below the reading level, it may as well be nothing. You can fix the problem, and the summer memory vacuum, with books from the Tuttle Twins series. Creator and writer and parent, Connor Boyack knows well the problem of finding good content for kids. Connor writes on his webpage, I've been in your shoes, so I wrote a series of books to teach your kids what their schools no longer do. Each Tuttle Twins book is a classic work made accessible to kids and includes titles such as Bastiat's The Law, Reed's Eye Pencil, as well as Gatto's Themes on Education, and a book about The Golden Rule. Connor also offers workbook companions, and if you buy the set of 10, the workbooks are free. Keep your kids reading and interested in reading this summer. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash Tuttle Twins. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash T-U-T-T-L-E-T-W-I-N-S. Or 
click the banner on today's show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 38. My guest today is Peter Reinhardt, baking instructor at Johnson & Wales University and baking cookbook author. Peter has written 12 books, including The Baker's Apprentice, which won the James Beard Award for books in 2002. Three other of Peter's books have won the Gourmand International Cookbook Award, and Peter himself won the 1996 James Beard National Bread Competition for his Wild Yeast Country Bread. He has a new book, Perfect Pan Pizza, Square Pies to Make at Home, from Roman, Sicilian, and Detroit, to Grandma Pies and Focaccia, which was released in May. Peter doesn't know it yet, but he was instrumental in my baking education, being one of two authors in whom I put my trust. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for joining me on the Culinary Libertarian Show today. Well, it's great to be with you. Before we get going into uh, the background, and, and I realize that your background is at least two books worth of information, but for people who don't know who you are, we'll get into a little bit of how you got into baking and teaching. Uh, I want to take a moment to tell you uh, that for me, Bread Upon the Waters may be the most spiritually moving and fulfilling book I've ever read since Jane Roberts' Seth series. And I think from your early days of um, religious exploration, you probably know who that is. So I'm, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I, if, if I ever read any of that, it was so long ago. Um, but I'm, I'm writing it down because well, I want to, now I've got to look it up. But my God, I'm, I'm thrilled and honored to hear you say that, uh, that the book worked for you because of all of the books that I've written, uh, it's the one that has sold well, the least number of copies. It's too bad because it's, <laughs> it's, it's just a magnificent work. And so Jane Roberts hung out at the time with Richard Bach, and you know who that is. Um, so sure. well, good luck. I mean, she's worth finding. It's interesting, but really this is also just to give you a very sincere thank you because it's spectacular. Both. Well, thank you. I'm honored. So if just a, a sort of a, a double ride elevator pitch about, uh, your background and how you came to be into baking and teaching, um, for people who don't know who Peter Reinhardt is. Well, uh, I'll try to see if I can do this in just a, uh, you know, concise way. Uh, so this is the Reader's Digest version, I guess. Uh, uh, I was a college major and, and majoring in film studies and broadcasting with a goal to be a, uh, a writer, a film writer and director. Uh, but about three quarters of the way through the process, I realized that number one, I wasn't really ready for college. I wasn't, I really, I felt like I had the skills, uh, and I, and I knew that I could write. But I just didn't know what I wanted to write about. I didn't feel like I had something that I could write about. And I turned down a couple of good entree jobs in the industry to work with uh, pretty big name directors like Otto Preminger, uh, because I felt like if I had gone into the film business before I was ready, it would gobble me up. It would chew me up and just destroy me. And of course, this was the late 60s, early 70s, when you know there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, social turmoil. There was consciousness issues. There was hallucinogenics, all sorts of things going around, a lot of spiritual seeking. And so I decided to leave college and kind of go on a journey of self-discovery, figure out who I was and what I had to say. And the first stop in that journey was uh, I fell in with a group of, of people that I, I guess you could just call them hippies 
who were getting ready to open a, a organic vegetarian restaurant in Boston where I was in school. And I decided to hang out with them. And uh, even though I didn't know how to cook, uh, I started to help them. We were getting the, the facility ready. We were you know, sanding chairs and painting. And finally, we opened. And uh, only a couple of people really knew how to cook. We had some good vegetarian uh, recipes and we had a vision of uh, organic uh, food that really didn't exist at that time in the East Coast. And uh, we opened and I started out just helping out and washing dishes and little by little started to cook. And uh, every day we'd volunteer for different dishes on the menu. And within six to eight months, I discovered that I liked cooking so much that I was a fast learner. And before long, I was cooking half the menu and sharing the rest of the menu with other people on the staff. And before long, I was essentially the kitchen manager. And that's where I discovered how much I love to cook. And also, um, we, while we made easy breads like banana bread and carrot breads and things like that, um, we didn't make our, our sandwich breads there. We had those uh, made for us by another hippie operation around the corner that was doing like organic whole grain breads uh, with natural starters, which was also very rare at that time. And so I would sometimes go over and watch them bake the bread. And I became fascinated with that process, but wasn't in a position to do anything about it until a few years later. So, so I'll fast forward. In a few years, we, we decided uh, as our sort of our own individual spiritual journeys began to unfold, all of us found next steps uh, that opened up for us. And for me, the next step was to become a brother in a uh, Christian service order. It was a non-denominational order, uh, but, we, but the order, uh, it was called the Holy Order of Man's existed, started around 1968. It's kind of a hybrid. It uh, borrowed from a lot of traditions, both Eastern religions, uh, Catholicism, uh, uh, mystical groups like Rosicrucian. It had a little bit of everything. It was it was kind of a, like I say, a hybrid, uh, but it was attracting people because there was something, there was a spirit in it that was compelling. And it was answering a lot of the questions that I had begun to uh, and ask and find answers for through meditation and yoga and Zen Buddhism, everything. But I, this particular group kind of brought them all together for me in a Western uh, articulation. And uh, the last place I expected to end up was in a Christian group because I was raised Jewish. Um, but I you know, kind of continued on with them for a while, going to classes uh, without necessarily committing to it. But after a while, uh, I realized this was the path for me, the next step in my life. And so I actually became a brother. And for the next 20 years, I was known as Brother Peter. Uh, and I was in this uh, brotherhood called the Holy Order of Mans, which later in the story uh, realized that we had gone as far as we could as an independent, non-affiliated sort of group of ragtag seekers and needed to anchor ourselves in something more traditional and solid. We were claiming that we had a priesthood and that you know we could sort of self-ordain ourselves. And we realized that that was really a little bit presumptuous. And so we started a deep study into the history of the Christian tradition uh, to see where we fit in in that tradition. And eventually we realized, having worked our way back from modern times all the way back to the origin days, that where the, the uh, theology and philosophy that was driving us was found was in the original Eastern Orthodox Christianity, what they call the mystical tradition of Eastern Orthodoxy, which is Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, um, uh, Antioch, and there's different jurisdictions of orthodoxy. 
but they that ran parallel to the Catholic tradition, which was basically the Western branch of orthodoxy until they split from each other about a thousand years ago. But the Eastern tra- church was where we felt that uh, we really were already kind of on a, had discovered a lot of those teachings on our own, and we needed to ally ourselves with that. And so we formally uh, petitioned, and this is, goes back to around 1986, to enter as, a, as a, an organization, as a brotherhood, enter into the Eastern Orthodox Church. That took a little bit of time to navigate all those, you know, travels and to kind of figure out what we were going to, what we had to jettison from our earlier days and what we could, you know, kind of embrace. We got rebaptized and and uh, essentially started over. But with this twenty, I had, by that time I'd been involved for 12, 13 years and had a pretty strong foundation. But now we had a whole new uh, treasure chest to tap into. So since 1986, I've been in the Eastern Orthodox Church, continued my journey. Uh, along that way, I, I got married. We had marriage in our community. My wife was a, a sister in the Brotherhood. And so she also um, was a very good cook. We both knew how to cook because uh, I'd been cooking in the restaurant earlier. I cooked a lot in our seminaries. And we decided to open a, a cafe uh, in the town where we were living, which was Forestville, California, uh, along the Russian River. Which was the the headquarters of our of our organization, and um, we opened a cafe called Brother Juniper's Cafe and Bakery. And uh, part of the idea was was we'd make all our own food. It was kind of a little test kitchen for food ideas that we had that possibly could support a community of people um, and bake bread because I had uh, over the years re-energized myself in the bread realm and started to fall in love with bread making. And I taught myself how to do it, uh, uh, started to study some techniques. And um, first thing that kind of was a breakthrough was making Julia Child's uh, 12-page instructions for how to do baguettes. And once I made baguettes and everybody flipped out over them, I was hooked forever. And then later on, I developed a recipe for a traditional uh, Scottish bread called struin, which is a harvest bread associated with the Michaelmas festival of um, of Celtic Christianity of uh, Christianity in general has a uh, harvest festival you know dedicated to Michael the Archangel and so we call it Michael Mass and uh, the Scottish version was the way they celebrated it uh, in the Isles of Scotland and this bread strewn was had a great backstory and lots of interesting sort of mythic qualities to it so I decided to make my own version and after a couple of years of playing with it uh, right about the time we decided to open our restaurant, uh, I decided to make that the centerpiece bread in our in our you know arsenal of breads that we were going to make in house, and that Sturm bread became the, I guess you'd say the flagship bread of what later became Brother Juniper's Bakery, and still to this day, many years later, uh, still the mo- my most favorite bread, the, the bread I think that most clearly defines me, who I am. It's almost like a metaphor of my own uh, journey. The word Struin itself actually means the convergence of streams, the opposite of like a French bread, which has four ingredients, the strewn bread, the harvest bread has about 12 ingredients. And I kind of realized at that point that one of the reasons why I love this bread is aside from the fact that it makes the best toast you've ever had is that, um, is that it kind of, uh, embodies me. I, myself, I'm a convergence of many streams and it, and I just identified with it so closely that I have a, an emotional connection that, uh, you know, makes it always my number one go-to bread. 
And beyond that, we eventually we um, we built it up. We sold the bakery and the restaurant. Um, the the brotherhood by that point had gone somewhat uh, scattered. We were no longer centralized, and everybody went off on their own. We no longer lived together in a in a semi monastic setting, but we went. Everyone was kind of on their own financially. We had the bakery for a while and the restaurant to support us, but it wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Uh, it wasn't my mission. I felt like my personal mission was teaching and writing. By then I had published my first book, Brother Juniper's Bread Book, and I'd just come out with my second book, which was called Sacramental Magic in a Small Town Cafe, which was recipes and stories from Brother Juniper's, and was working on my next book, uh, which was uh, the book that uh, came out. Actually, it didn't come out third, but it was the third book I worked on called Bread Upon the Waters, which you've already mentioned. And um, and so all of a sudden I realized that uh, I finally had something to write about. After all these years of you know leaving the film opportunities behind, that I finally knew what I had to write about. Bread became the guiding metaphor of my writings. And I've been following that ever since. Uh, the, the books led to teaching opportunities and became, I became a culinary instructor in San Francisco at the uh, California Culinary Institute for five years. And then Johnson and Wales invited me to become part of the faculty in Rhode Island at Providence's campus, the, the original Johnson and Wales campus. And we, uh, my wife Susan and I decided to move back east from California because our families were all back there. It was the right time, the right job. And I've been with Johnson and Wales. This year is my 20th year with Johnson and Wales. But uh, four years into the process, they announced that they were going to open a campus in Charlotte, North Carolina. Susan's family had moved to the Carolinas. I had lived in the Carolinas during my missionary days, and I loved it. And so we decided to uh, jump on the the Carolina wagon, and uh, I've been here now for the last 15 years. And that brings us to the present moment. In between, I just kept writing books, and now I'm up to my 12th book. Fabulous. Well, the Carolinas are beautiful. My sister lives in the Carolinas, and I've lived there as well. So good for you. And uh, I, one of the things that comes through very clearly in your writings that I've read, and I, I sort of found you, I went in sort of weird order, I, I found you when The Baker's Apprentice was very popular. And I, I, I started as a cook, and most cooks can't and won't bake. <laughs> There's, there, there's, there are two different disciplines, and you've already figured this out. But uh, cooks generally like to have this sort of just this heat and fire and Tim Allen and ooh ooh ooh. And there's a there's a there's a kind of discipline to cooking, but there's a very different kind of discipline to baking. Even something as simple as a muffin, and you can't you can't bully it around. So I think cooks tend to avoid baking. But I and so I, I didn't have this, but the that book and another one were really instrumental. So this is the thing you don't know was uh, even though we've never met until now we're talking, for many, many years, you were my trusted source for what bridge should be. And and I got better because of that. And that's mostly due wow. to the Baker's Apprentice. Um, although I will say <laughs> the assembly and the bread Man, oh man, oh man, that kicked my butt. Like you see, have you mastered it yet, or are we still working? I haven't. I, we tried and tried and tried and tried, and we'll, we'll, we'll um, carry on after this conversation with a little back and forth to, to get you to 
to uh, the perfect version of the semolina brand. We call it Pane Siciliano in the book, and I love it. Um, so I'll get you there. Well, my, my at the time, one of my cooks uh, was from New Jersey and said, "Oh, I know this bread." So we tried and we tried and we tried. Well, that one that one eluded us, but <laughs> uh, I have since uh, I have made your focaccia my own and. We did your ciabattas there at the restaurant, and and so and and oh yeah, talk about you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, move your hands faster than the dough sticks. That's a, where that, was that's the restaurant? Uh, it was in Tallahassee. Oh, all right, yeah, and it's hard to do bread in, in the Florida area because of, of the heat and the humidity. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to control yes, it. You can do it. It's just that it, you have different issues with uh, fermentation times. Oh my gosh, so many problems. Um, so. You're, you mentioned about the emotional connection was something that really resonates to me in your writings, especially uh, because through Brother Juniper and Bread Upon the Waters, but also uh, in The Apprentice, and then also now in in your new Perfect Pan Pizza book. And one of the things that I, I think this might be a bigger thing, I think that there's a lot of people for whom uh, or to whom, if you say. Uh, if if you wax reminiscent and fondly about the sound of a baguette cracking as it's cooling, uh-huh. I think a lot of people will look at you like, "Yeah, okay, I need the guy. Sorry, gotta go now," and and that's and that's okay. <laughs> um, and so I I had uh, so at this same Tallahassee restaurant, uh, I had. I had learned where where we started this baking breads really in earnest was uh, also in Tallahassee, the other end of the block. I worked for a certified master chef, uh, and we really, really, really pushed on doing uh, traditional Levin style sourdough rise and other things because we had to have sandwiches, and so we couldn't just be all frou frou. But that's where the appreciation came, and so teaching my cooks at uh-huh. this other place, I said to these young these young guys, I said, listen. When you're pulling this bread out and, it's, and it starts to crack, this is this is the bread talking back to you. Right. And what the bread right. says is, "I love you too," and it's <laughs> saying that because it's thanking you for making and baking the bread the right way. And <laughs> and they thought like I, that this guy is just off his nut. Yeah, they. That's the point where they say to you, "You're not going to expect me to hug you right now, are you?" Well, if you you can if you want to, but no, that wasn't a part of the thing. And I know you're you're joking, but you know you give you, you give someone who's inter- interested in baking that opportunity, and if if they have an artist's spirit, and th- this one fellow was a musician, so he had that he he had that ability to appreciate craft, and he got it. He it just it clicked. He said, "Oh my gosh, yeah. I understand." Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and it is true when you when you tap into when it happens to you, uh, it can kind of like uh, circumvent all those other preconceptions that you have about you know where, how you're supposed to be with this stuff. It touches you emotionally for sure. It and 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 yes, and and so it isn't really a problem, but it's one of those kinds of transformations from which there is no return once you've crossed over into bread appreciation. Uh-huh. Then, then that's it. Now, and then suddenly, things <laughs> commercial bread becomes almost insufferable. 
<laughs> right, right. It kind of ru- ruins you for bread. It, yeah. it, it, it kind of does. And so I've got kids. And so sometimes I've, I've actually turned, I've now I make, I make a variety of loaves, partly because I can pronounce the ingredients in the loaves <laughs> and I can control them, but I don't want to buy that anymore because it's, even if it's a soft right. crusted bread for a sandwich, I want to have more control over what I'm doing. So, um, yeah. well, I'm glad you said that because, um, I think what you described also is kind of the arc of the artisan bread movement over the last 20 years in America. Whereas, you know, prior to the, let's say the 1990s, there was very little good bread in the United States. We were almost, you know, like um, mocked by the rest of the bread world for having horrible bread or mediocre bread at best. Um, And it wasn't until people would say, go to France or go to Germany or someplace where they made good bread that they would come back and go, wow, I finally know what real bread is. Um, and then one by one, these little bakeries started popping up. Most of them were inspired by the advent of the Bread Bakers Guild of America in the early 90s, which brought a lot of master bakers over here to teach us their techniques and to share this, the methods that they were using. And all of a sudden, there were artisan bakeries popping up around the country, changing the palate of, of, of their customers and Americans to where the expectation was raised, the bar was raised. And little by little, more and more people got to that point you just described of not being willing to settle for just average so-so product anymore. And and it and it is tipped over. It took it probably tipped over around uh, in the early two thousands. Um, and then of course there were challenges to bread with the gluten free movement and the low carb movements and all those things. And yet bread keeps reemerging because it's so deeply embedded in our psyches and in our souls and so primal to us that that it's the hardest thing to give up, much harder to give up bread than it is to give up meat or, you know, some other food or, you know, that you might have a problem with because people just love their bread. Yes, I agree. So anyway, that's in that parallel, I think uh, you, just that little arc I was describing, we've seen it paralleled in the craft beer movement as well. Oh, And very much the same thing because really, you know, beer is just liquid bread when you think about it and bread is solid beer. And so the, the arc is similar, um, and this happened in the United States of, uh, over 100 years ago in the late 1800s when there were many craft breweries around the country who were then little by little, you know, gobbled up by a few of the big guys, and then it all got kind of down into like three or four major breweries. And then finally it burst out of that shell back, in, you know, maybe 15 years ago started on the heels of the bread movement. And now the pizza movement is another iteration of that same kind of breathing pattern of uh, going from good pizza. Uh, the, the pizza makers have been informed and influenced by the artisan bread makers. The palate of America has changed. People are, have higher expectations and uh, it's no longer acceptable to just make an average product. People want to be able to make the exceptional, extraordinary product because their customers really demand it. And it's kind of a cool thing to watch this thing unfold. It happened with wine also, I guess you could say, even before it happened with beer. So uh, there's so many parallels. Uh, but And for me, of course, this, the, the path that I've been on as a bread maker, you know, I've been able to tell that story. But I'm, I'm watching with amusement the same story unfold in these other areas of artisanship and craft. Right. Yeah, beer and bread. I've, I, I actually probably stole it from you, but the, the beer is beer and bread being almost the same. Um, the, the thing about bread and you touch on this and I want to just get back to this and see about your feeling with your students with there's 
I don't want to. I don't want to assume too much. I want to be sort of disrespectful, but there is almost the, well, actually, very much the symbolic creation of life in making a loaf of bread. You're starting with nothing, and you're making this thing, which, for intents and purposes, it's 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 representing a life, and so there is very strong mythological connections and symbolical connections. Yeah, yeah. Well, you nailed it. You, you know exactly. I think that is the defining quality of why bread and in and other fermented foods, you know, beer, cheese, you know, but especially bread, that, that the fact that you're bringing something to life, you know, you've taken the life from the wheat and, and now you're transforming it back into something new and living that does work on us very subconsciously, very subliminally, uh, but maybe also very soulfully. And uh, even if you're not thinking about it, very few people do think about it, but it's still working on us because that's pretty profound. Uh, yes. So my, one of my questions is, and I think your experience with your students would, would inform this answer, does one need to have an appreciation of that happening to excel at being a baker? Or can, say, the engineer who <laughs> sees more the the assembly of a product into the gestalt of the finished thing. Right. That doesn't necessarily preclude that person from being a great baker. So, is, is the, how, how do how do you teach this? Well, can you teach this to someone who doesn't get it? Well, actually, I you know uh, it remind as you're saying that it reminded me of something I read years ago in a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. <laughs> was, that ties uh, in with Richard Bach and with uh, yeah, Jane Roberts. Yeah, exactly, and and. Uh, and that book was very, was one of those books that was very popular, sold a lot of copies, but very few people actually read it from cover to cover because it was a not an easy read. Uh, no. This was really about sort of a an emotional breakdown of a guy, um, uh, and through kind of his motorcycle, uh, kind of brought him back to life. And but in that book, he described that there are two kinds of of motorcycle people. They're the ones who love getting so called under the hood. They love to take it apart and clean it and 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 fine-tune it and they're really mechanically oriented. And then are the people who just like to get on the motorcycle and ride and let their hair, you know, flow in the wind. And it's kind of the more romantic aspect of motorcycle maintenance. And both of those are legitimate and valid in their own rights. And some people are more prone towards one side or the other. And some people embrace both of those aspects. And I find that with, for me, with bread baking, it's similar in the sense that there is the nuts and bolts aspect and you can make great bread without having to think about about it philosophically or mystically or you know symbolically uh, it's 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 a, a, a very literally an easy thing to learn how to do and many bakers majority of bakers make great bread without having to think about those things at all because they know that if they do a plus b plus c plus c it equals great bread um, I think that to, to peel back the layers to a little bit you know deeper realm, just enhances your appreciation. So, uh, and again, I'll reference uh, an old uh, teaching that was popularized in the uh, about a thousand years ago during the, the scholastic period of Christianity, and it was articulated in a writing by uh, Dante Alighieri, in which he described that there are four levels of understanding the meaning of all things, and everything exists on four levels. Many spiritual traditions have different ways of saying this. They may say seven levels of meaning or three levels of it, but he said four, and I like these four. And the first one being the literal level, 
in which, you know, it's just literally the, the truth of that level, such as, you know, uh, mixing your dough and shaping it and baking it. Um, the next level down is, is what he called the metaphorical or poetic level in which uh, things exist at this, at this poetic symbolic level. A deeper level even than that, he said, was the philosophical uh, level in which uh, you, you kind of break it down into like first principles and it exists. And you don't break it down, but it exists on these other levels of universal principles. And then he said at the deepest level of all is what they call the mystical level or the term they used was anagogical, the anagogical level of understanding. He says, but the key to all of this is you cannot access the three deeper levels until you first go through the literal level. You must go through the literal to understand the deeper. And so I think that for me, you know, I, I only kind of come to these kinds of thoughts because I was making bread and not really thinking about it in a in any kind of symbolic or spiritual sense, but just simply in the literal sense of making bread. But after years of making it and then having a few insights here and there, and my first book was based on the single in insight that slow rising bread is better tasting than fast rising bread. That was the the, the insight. And that led to the idea of, uh, oh, I think the title was Brother Juniper's Bread Book, subtitle, Slow Rise as Method and Metaphor. And that's when I began to think of bread making as a and, and bread as a metaphor beyond just the, the literal level of a loaf of bread. And then reporters would ask me in interviews what it was about bread that made it so special to people. Why does it have this sort of special place in so many people's hearts? And it was only in trying to answer those questions for the reporters that I began to go deeper and deeper and little by little uncovered some of these other teachings like, like the four levels of meaning. All this kind of came afterwards. And so for me, all that did well, what it mainly did was it totally enhanced my understanding and appreciation of bread and, and allowed it to have more meaning than ever in my life and have something to be able to write about and, and talk about and use as a way to help other people sort of understand, again, not just how to make bread, but sort of the purpose of life. Because, you know, with my background in ministry, everything I do really is not about the literal thing that I'm writing about, but it's about the deeper level of the meaning and purpose of life. Finding a meaningful life is really the theme of all my writings. And um, and, I, and it wasn't until I kind of started to peel these onion layers back to see these deeper levels that I actually felt like I had something to share. So, uh, but going back to your original question, no, I don't think that you have to even think about these things. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't have to have, you know, you don't have to be poetic to be able to make great bread. Anybody can do it. And then sometimes it will touch you in a way that opens you up to deeper levels. Peter, let's take a moment out for a word from my sponsor. Well, your your observation about, and the title was right, Slow Rise is Method and Metaphor. And in Bread Upon the Waters and Brother Juniper, one of the, I'm, and it, to me, it isn't even cloaked. The metaphor is slow rise of the bread, creating a better bread is the slow rise of the person makes a better person. And you're very plain about that in Bread Upon the Waters. Um, but that's, I, there you go, yeah. I like that part. And that, and, and there's, there's a connection to me that, you know, authors try, this is sort of the Proustian moment, you sort of try to create that perfect thing that 40 years from now, someone's going to remember. Yeah. And um, there's, 
there's just something in the way you write that I connect with. And this is the thing readers look for is they look for the authors like, oh my gosh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's bordering on almost silliness. And I don't mean to make it silly because it's not to be made light of, but this is a big deal. And I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with your work. So. Well, thank you. Well, you know, I think what you're describing is, is what, uh, what I call an, an epiphany, you know, that, and we all, and, and, and what a good writer can do, and I'm trying to be a good writer. I'm getting better and better as I do it more often. But I think what, a, with the challenge of a good writer or artist of any sort is to create something that touches a person so that they have their own epiphanies, that it's, that they're not, they're not just vicariously having your epiphany. Uh, your epiphany may have sparked what you're writing or creating, but you haven't completed the circle until the person you're communicating with has their own aha moment. And you've described a number of aha moments that you've had, you know, in your own journey. And that gives me the most joy because that means that I've, you know, that gives me a sense of fulfillment that I've touched somebody in a way that's helped them to have their own ahas. Well, yes, sir. Well done. Um, I'm going to go to uh, the idea of the increased awareness and desire for artisanal products. And we're going to keep it focused mostly on, I mean, beer and wine, yes, but on bread mostly and food in general. Uh, and we, we've already decided that anybody can do it. It's kind of like that movie Ratatouille. Anybody can cook. Uh, you make the observation about Escoffier. Cooking is taking an ingredient and doing something to it. Anybody can do that. Scoffier says, great cooking is taking that and then doing something else to it. Yeah. And that's where we're going to lose a few people. Right. And that's okay. So uh, one of the things that I'm sort of working on on my blog and on, the, on this podcast is I, I think a lot of people go out to a really good restaurant and that sets the bar for them about what this particular dish ought to be. Then they go home and they want to try and recreate it. And they're probably not going to do it because what they don't know is behind the scenes through that wall is a dozen sets of hands, an incredible amount of equipment and time and labor and access to things that nobody at home has. So it's an unrealistic expectation that you're going right. to go and recreate a meal from Boulay or from um, Le Cirque or Spago. I think we need to change our expectation. Right. You know, no one, not everyone's LeBron James. Not everyone is Cyril Heights. We can't just go and do this stuff, but let's change our expectation. So now we can have success that we're proud of. And that's where home baking and home cooking becomes more successful than not. Because, you know, and I got people that I told you I can't bake. Right. Well, right. Okay. Let's start. Let's, the, change the expectation, then change the result. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's a good point. I mean, first of all, you know, I, as a culinary school teacher, we see a lot of students who come in who want to be great cooks and they maybe uh, are good cooks and, and, and then they think about wanting to have a restaurant. And for some of those kids, you know that, um, that the joy that they have in cooking and, and learning about cooking might be extinguished if they go into the restaurant business because it could destroy them if they're not really ready for that. Um, uh, they say that, you know, the people that, uh, that uh, make great home cooking and their friends say, you want to open a restaurant, you're so good at it. And then they, they finally do open a restaurant and, be, and then they stop loving the cooking process because they get overwhelmed by the burden of, of running a business. So it's a, it's a tricky balance. It's not for everybody. Uh, and then to, and then to master something, you know, the, 
the 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell talks about that it takes to be good at anything. Um, that's a lot of hours and it takes a lot of practice. And, and, um, and as even with me, you know, bread making, I've been doing it now for professionally for 30 years, but I'm still constantly feeling like, um, you know, there's still two, more to learn and I haven't mastered it. Every once in a while, I make a great loaf. I have plenty of failures. I have breads that, you know, don't meet my highest expectations. It's, a, it's, it's humbling. It's humbling to do any craft um, and to do it and repeat it over and over and over again. Uh, uh, imagine all the shots that Michael Jordan and LeBron James have missed to get to the point where they can make as many as they made. Uh, no, exactly. Have resilience to get through that. True enough. True enough. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your new book, Perfect Pan Pizza. Uh, it is a stunning book. It is just gorgeous. I was so impressed by that when I looked at it. I was like, this is, so I was very excited about it because the pictures are beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, our, our photographer and his wife, who was a food stylist, worked together as a team. It's the first time we've done a book together, and it was a joy to work with them. Well, they've done great work because the, the pictures, you just want to eat the pictures. They're just, you know, and everyone says that, but I'm telling you, it's like, this is really, really well done. So good, good job on all that front. Great. So one of the things now you make a comment about this in the book, but I want you to talk about it. I am from Detroit, uh, and when I was a kid, it was just pizza. Right. So right. I had to go to Oregon to find out that Detroit pizza is a thing. So <laughs> yeah, tell us about Detroit pizza. Uh, um, Detroit pizza is well. You're right. In Detroit, this, it's pizza. Detroit pizza is just pizza. And so we have to kind of go back a step. Um, what is pizza? <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and for me, the definition of pizza is um, dough with something on it. It's as simple as that. So if pizza is just dough with something on it, you know, what is it that distinguishes good pizza, of which 99% of the pizza that's made in this country is good. It works. Pizza is a perfect food. It always delivers flavor, which is the ultimate goal of food is to deliver flavor. And pizza is the perfect flavor delivery system, even when it's done at an average level. And I know this is true because look at all the frozen pizzas that are consumed every day and the, and the takeout pizzas and the, the, you know, the, the fast stuff that is okay, but it's not great. And so then I had to say, okay, what is the difference between good and great? of which there's only maybe 1% of the pizzas. Maybe it's grown to 2% in the last few years because this category is growing and improving. Um, and and finally, I came up with, after writing a book 15 years ago uh, called uh, American Pie, My Search for the Perfect Pizza, I came to a couple conclusions, one being that the definition of greatness is boils down to one thing. Is it memorable? Greatness is defined for me uh, by something that you've done or eaten or experience you've had that is memorable. It's burned into your into your memory, into your consciousness in a way that creates a benchmark for other experiences. So pizzas that are memorable become the standard by which, just like the bread you were describing, become the standards by which all of the pizzas afterwards are judged and gauged. And there are certain ones that 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 you just know it when you experience it. This has become a new benchmark for me. It is memorable. And now there, you know, I may have in my mind as many as 20 places that I can think of that produce memorable pizza. But when I wrote the first book, there were only a few of them out there that were really famous and, and had passed the t test of time 
or the test of passion of people, you know, kind of uh, accepting the consensus being this is a great pizzeria. Some have been around for a long time, like Frank Pepe's in uh, New Haven, uh, and some are newer. Um, so that starts, that's the beginning of the conversation is what makes them great. And what makes pizza great is the fact that dough with something on it is the perfect way to deliver flavor. And then after that, it's all about, okay, what are the flavors we're delivering? And um, again, another corollary or a, a kind of a principle that I go by is that what makes a pizza memorable is the crust. It starts with the crust, not the toppings. Cheese and sauce are almost like the bonus ingredients. Uh, that's part of what the flavor being conveyed to you, but it's being conveyed to you on a crust that can either, you know, like rock your world or just be a crust that then sort of shifts all the attention to the topics. When the crust is great, you have a chance to create a memorable pizza experience. If the crust is just average, then it doesn't matter how great the toppings are on top. The best you can hope for is a good and interesting pizza, but not one that becomes seared into your memory as memorable. And so when I looked at all the, the pizzas that I found that, that sort of did it for me, that, that rocked me, it, it, it was always a great crust was involved there. And, and being a bread guy, of course, that spoke to my, my uh, wheelhouse. And I started looking for places and, and trying to find what it is that the place, places and people that were creating those kinds of pizzas were doing that other people weren't doing that differentiated the, the great ones from just the, the good ones. And, and so then, you know, and I, when I wrote that book, Detroit pizza wasn't even on my radar because it was still kind of a secret of Detroit. This pizza baked in a square pan was Detroit's little secret. Um, and people moved away from Detroit, knew about it, but it really wasn't a thing yet. Um, there were other square type pizzas. There's focaccia, there's, there's pizzas that are made in St. Louis that have their style. There's so many different styles of pizza, but I didn't really tune in to the Detroit thing until a few years ago. And all of a sudden, I, as a, I started judging pizza competitions at the pizza expos and the various conventions, and it started out with most of the focus being on wood-fired Neapolitan-style pizzas because that's the hot thing right now. And we also had a category for traditional American style or slash New York style pizzas um, that, that are sort of the Americanized version of Neapolitan pizza. And then they had to create a new category because more and more people were entering pizzas in a, in what they called the non-traditional category, meaning anything goes. And the ones that kept coming up over and over again were these square pizzas with a thicker crust uh, that, that they were being referred to as Detroit pizzas. So of course, then I started to look into all that and figure out, you know, where that all came from. And it's got a great origin story in Detroit with, you know, this guy Gus, you know, who worked in the auto industry, who who walked out when he retired with tons of these uh, blue steel pans that were used to hold nuts and bolts in the in the um, manufacturing facilities. And he started baking pizzas in them. And little by little, that's, you know, he kind of perfected that style and other people copied him. And a couple generations have gone by. And uh, a few of these uh, pizzerias, uh, uh, one of them being Jets, I think Jets was the first to break out of Detroit and sort of franchise the idea. Um, and then, you know, little by little, some of the other ones did. And then other chefs started to catch on to it. And in New York City, a pizzeria called Any Squared opened, and they got squared for the square pizza. There's one in Chicago doing square pizzas. 
And they may not call them Detroit style, but they're all inspired by this Detroit style. And so then again, okay, what is it about this pizza that makes it so special? Because when I had that pizza and I experienced it and I went, whoa, there's something special going on here. I didn't know there was a pizza of this caliber, you know, and of this style. And now I need to find out what it is and how I can make the best version of it. And so getting back to what makes it unique and special is um, that it, because it is baked in a pan, you can use a little bit wetter stick of your dough and spread it out like you could do like a focaccia. And the pan is, is oiled and the oil will actually bake into and fry the bottom of the crust, creating a texture very similar to hot buttered toast. I think of it as like toffee. It kind of shatters when you bite into it and, and the shards of the crust, you know, kind of break apart in your mouth and you get this, all I can describe it as it's a delightful pleasure that I associate with, with hot, great hot buttered toast. And we're seeing a lot of toasting cafes. People are into toast again. Well, toast and Detroit style pizza are very, very similar. So that's on the bottom. Then to top it off on the side of the pizza, well, not to top it off, but to uh, add to this on the side of the pizza in this style of pizza, so the cheese, some of the cheese is put all the way around the edge. And as it bakes, the cheese melts not only on top, but down the side of the pizza and bakes on the edge of the, the, the crust, which is usually about a th an inch to an inch and a half thick. Um, it's not thin like a, like an American style or Neapolitan style pizza, but it gets this, this crispy cheese edge around the outer edge of the pizza, which um, is sometimes referred to as a Frico, F-R-I-C-O, a Frico, which is just basically like a thin cheese wafer. It's that having a, a Frico is not going to make the pizza memorable, but it, it's sort of part of the gestalt of the pizza. It gives it this special little bonus factor. And then on top, um, the, the Detroit style pizzas um, uh, often have uh, are made with either uh, uh, brick cheese, which is a Wisconsin type cheese, uh, which is hard to find for home bakers, or a combination of mozzarella and cheddar and uh, possibly fontina, provolone, different kinds of cheeses that melt really, really good. And there's quite a bit put on top. So you get, it's kind of the opposite of a Neapolitan pizza, which is more minimalistic. Uh, a Detroit pizza is maximalistic. It's thicker crust. You know, it's a lot of everything. It goes against all the things that I would have been uh, on paper opposed to until I tasted one. And then all those rules just went out the window and I went, oh my God, there's a better a better way of doing pizza than I than I knew about, and then I started working on my own version of it uh, because I got uh, invited to be a consultant for a restaurant in Texas that wanted to put a Detroit pizza on the menu, and it wasn't a pizza restaurant, and so he was going to have to re-engineer the whole kitchen to be able to include a pizza on it just as a first course. It wasn't going to be the main item there, but he wanted to have one as good as the Detroit pizza that he had had. In a, in a restaurant in Telluride, Colorado called The Brown Dog. And uh, Jeff Smokovich is the owner of that. Uh, I, I've met him at the Pizza Expos. And Jeff is kind of one of the rock stars of this style of pizza. He does a killer version. and I, But I hadn't had his pizza when I was um, asked to create you know, a version for, my, for this guy. And so we just started working on it. And I said, well, how will I know when I've achieved you know, one that matches uh, Jeff's pizza? And he said, well, he said, here's what I look for. He said, I'm looking for some, a wow factor. I go for, for me, what excites me is when something wows me. And so I said, so my job is to get you to wow. And he said, exactly. And when I get to wow, you'll know it. And we spent a week 
working on different variations and things. And we finally, the breakthrough came when we um, decided to try, and it was at the suggestion of one of his one of his uh, managers, try putting half of the cheese on the dough before we let the dough rise in the pan. Because it takes the dough three to four hours to rise after you fill the pan with it to get it to be just right. And so we put half the cheese on before the rise and then the other half right before we baked it. And something magical happened in the dough. By doing that, it not only tenderized the dough, kind of made it and embedded the cheese. Uh, it, it gave it a, a flavor and character that we weren't getting any other way. And it actually, uh, after we kind of fine-tuned it, in my opinion, surpassed even the best Detroit pizzas I've had anywhere else, including Jeff's, which I later had at Pizza Expo, and it was really, really good. But I think this little trick that we added, which is totally original to the book, is my sort of addition to the to the lexicon of making these style pizzas. And it, and that's what gave me the idea for, for writing a book about it. So uh, the book then, you know, is sort of a celebration of not only Detroit style pizzas, but other types of pizzas that are baked in pans like focaccia, Sicilian style, uh, schiacciata, which is basically Tuscan focaccia, um, and even uh, a grandma pie, which has you know been around forever in New York, but is really just simply a pizza baked in a pan, um, like a Sicilian pie, but slightly different. And so the book kind of celebrates all of those styles of pizza baked in the pan. But the star of the book really is, and, and I'm not even calling them Detroit style; I'm referring them as Detroit style pizzas, but we're calling them deep pan pizzas deep pan as opposed to deep dish which is the chicago style and we're not even touching chicago style in the book because that's a whole different entity altogether it's more like a it's very good but it's more like a casserole and a pastry it's it's good the, the crust is more pastry like uh, so i'm not i felt that needed a book of its own so the deep pan pizzas are for me the emerging star in this category we're doing another category that's emerging big and you'll over the next couple of years will become very big is Roman style, which is like a focaccia baked in a pan, thicker crust than a pizza. Uh, but all again, the emphasis is on the quality of that crust, and it needs to be large, open holes, airy, very ciabatta-like. Uh, that when you bite into it, has a crackle to it that just again, the, the, in addition to the wonderful flavor, gives you a, a type of pleasure just when you hear the sound of the crust itself. Uh, and, and all these pieces come together. So these, so it just goes to show that there's many ways to make pizza and many ways to deliver flavor and pleasure to people. And I just like to zero in on sort of the characteristics that really make it happen. And, and my goal now is to bring everybody to that moment of wow. Well, we, I made it. Uh, I made the dough. I did uh, the Levan version of the dough on Saturday, and I cheated up a little bit because I have a starter on my counter. So I used some of that to help give it a little, little bit of a goose and put in the cooler for a couple of days. And then, so I've, I followed, followed the procedure just so, cause this is a new kind of pizza to me. So I, I did, you know, the first thing is I, I weighed the amount of dough you recommended for a 10 inch pan and I got it in there. And so it was like 270, 269, 270 grams for a 10 inch pan. And I'm pushing it around and I'm thinking, there's just no way this is going to work. So I like, that's all right. Let's, you know, let's, let's stick with it. Yeah. Go through it first. Let's see what happens. You yeah. did this for a reason. I appreciate and it. <laughs> so I, I put it in a big Ziploc bag so it wouldn't dry out and let it proof over hours, put the cheese on top. Um, as it's sitting there, uh, pepperoni, more cheese and son of a gun, that dough really rose. 
And and I, I must admit, I have a convection oven, so I sort of, and I know better than this. I shouldn't have done it. I backed off on the heat a little bit. I went to 450. That's right. You did the right 500. thing. Well, I should have gone high because I didn't, the crust was fine. And if you were to look at it, you had a nice bake. It had a good, maybe uh, eighth of an inch of good crust. But I I like extremes in in my bread and especially in my crust. Yeah. So I wanted a I wanted a more profound crunch yeah. and crack. But the family adored it. It <laughs> disappeared, and, and of course because I'm in Oregon, the Wisconsin brick cheese is is don't even bother looking for it. Right. Um, I just used instead of buying shredded mozzarella, I bought a round of it. It wasn't the it wasn't the goat. It wasn't the buffalo milk. It was just. Yeah commercial stuff but you know the that big brick of well wrong i'm gonna confuse people that block of mozzarella cheese cut into small squares has a different melty texture that's right than shredded mozzarella so i would recommend do away with shredded mozzarella it's just it's horrible (laughs) for this pizza for this style of pizza the reason we suggest cutting them into cubes instead of shredding it uh you know into threads is that it takes about fifteen to eighteen minutes to bake, and uh, and it, at that at, at about four hundred and seventy five to five hundred degrees, depending on your oven. It sounds like in your oven you may want to go to four seventy five, let's say, with your convection. But um, but in that amount of time, the the shredded cheese will not only melt and caramelize, but it'll probably carbonize. We don't want to burn it. Whereas you, if you start with the larger cubes, it takes longer for it to melt and spread, so you don't burn it. And that's, that's, that's the practical reason for doing it. Uh, and let me throw, before I forget, let me throw one more trick at you for the next time you do these. Because uh, the, the cheese is hard to find. Brick cheese is very hard to find. And brick cheese is a delicious cheese. It's got a nice little tang to it. It's kind of a cross between cheddar and, and uh, Swiss and a few other. But what it's really like, and I found this out by talking to one of the companies that makes it. Um, and the company also makes another cheese that everybody can get called Munster cheese. Mm. And I and I hadn't thought about Munster and brick being similar, but they are. And so he suggested, he said, if, tell people if they can't find the brick, you know, they can always use the blends of mozzarella and other cheeses. So I, I like to use mozzarella, fontina, or a little bit of cheddar for the tanginess. But he said, but have them use Munster instead, and they'll get pretty much the same um, functionality that they would from the brick. And so I've switched over and I've started using Munster cheese uh, more and more, and I'm in, totally in love with it. And prior to that, I was just sort of so-so about Munster cheese. I liked it, but it wasn't my favorite. But on this pizza, it works really good. So well, if you get a chance, yeah. try that and tell me what you think. I will look for that. And my other recommendation to you, and I don't think I can get it here because I haven't seen it, it's hard to find also, is Fontanella, which melts like a dream. It is... Ooh. God, it's, it's so good. So Fontanella um, is different from Fontina. Yes, I'm, what, I'm what, not entirely what? sure how it is, but it's it's the, it has it's similar. Uh, Fontanella is a little softer, and it just has uh-huh. a lower melting point. And yeah. I first discovered this melting point making a uh, an open faced melted cheese and turkey sandwich, and it just it just under the salamander melted. And, like, wow. This wow. is incredible, but the flavor, awesome. especially yeah. the compatibility with the nice bread and uh, tur- turkey breast and avocado and this cheese. Oh my goodness! <laughs> this is just well, there you go. so <laughs> it was great. Yeah, so I, I, I hear I can almost uh, taste that as you're describing yeah. it. 
And I think part of what makes those cheeses like that so good is the butterfat that's in there, you know, that oh, yeah. starts to melt up. And so, yeah, so you don't want to use, if you're using mozzarella, you don't want to use the low-fat mozzarella. Use the full-fat oh, mozzarella. But but these other cheeses, like you just described, even have a higher concentration because they're aged a little bit. So, you know, we're talking about sandwiches, and you make the observation in your book that um, sometimes for inspiration and innovation, you think about what sandwich do I like and how can I just make that a pizza. So you came up with a Reuben pizza and I told this to my wife. She said, oh my gosh, that sounds so good. And also the spaghetti and meatballs pizza. And she's like, you have to make that. What are you talking about? So, um, so we're going to, we're going to go with that. But I, I'm the, the thing that impressed me the most was <laughs> just the, a whole new thinking into what pizza can be. And, and so you have to time. You have to plan. This is not a roll the dough out and slap it in the oven kind of a pizza. But it is – and I got to tell you, I was thinking, yeah. how in the world do restaurants respond to this? How do you know how many doughs to have out ready and waiting? This is sounds like a well, – that, That's a really good question. And, and uh, let me return back to that restaurant in Texas to complete that story because it kind of uh, speaks to that. Um we 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 kind of came up with this the the, the recipe the the system everything uh, by the end of that week that we were working on it and that was in uh, the end of June um, and then I returned home to North Carolina and he said we're going to start we our child challenge the challenge now for my restaurant is how are we going to integrate it into our system because all we have we don't have a pizza oven we just have an under the under the range uh, wolf oven um, and I said that's all you need you know the, but. But we use, he says, we use that for other things too. I said, well, we know what temperature we have to be. If you can just keep that temperature in place. Um, and then we talked about staging the pizzas, setting them up, starting a day ahead, getting, you know, his goal at first was to make 60 a day in the restaurant and sell 60 as an appetizer course um, and not take anything else off the menu, but just have it be a bonus, you know, a, a plus to the menu. And he said, if I can do 60 a day, I'll be very happy. So I said, well, we'll set it up for 60, knowing that they'll stay in the refrigerator for up to three or four days. If you don't use them, you can pull them out three days later and they're still just as good because the refrigerator will, will stop the fermentation. Um, and so he started with 60. And, and But it took him, I think it wasn't until the end of October that he put it on the menu. It took them three months to to train the staff, to, to get a flow and a system in place, and then as soon as they started introducing it to the menu, they took off and the 60 were not enough. And when I called them a few weeks after he launched it and I said, well, how's it going? He said, oh, my God, we've created a monster. We're selling 120 a day instead of 60. He said, I can't keep up. Uh, and he said, he said, but that's a good problem yes. to have and we're going to solve it. You know? So anyway, but it, but it did take a month of planning you know, because he didn't want to come out prematurely and then screw it up. You know? So he did a very smart thing and, and got, trained his staff to be able to rotate them, he knew, you know, how many hours ahead to take them out. He got to where he could predict pretty much how many would sell. And then you pull them out, you, you know, a few hours, four hours before you're actually planning to bake them. If it looks like it's a slow night and you're not going to use them all, you can put them back in the fridge and slow them down again. So it's a very forgiving pizza dough itself. Bread dough can be very forgiving. Um, there are things that, you know, if you over ferment something, it's hard to go back, but uh, you can always catch things and, and uh, arrest the fermentation, so to speak, we call it retard the dough by holding it back by using colder temperatures like refrigeration. And he, you know, he's got it all dialed in now. 
All right, so we've talked about all the things that are possible and lots of ideas of what can happen with the pizza. So let's ask the inverse. Is there something that simply should never go on a pizza? Uh, that's a good By question. By the way, you have uh, the Hollywood, you have the um, Hawaiian pizza in your book. That's a yeah. <laughs> on social media, that's uh, lots of people are like showing pineapple on pizza. Like, Get out. <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's very controversial. And, uh, and I think that's because it's, again, people, you know, can easily fall into what I, you know, the, 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 the purest rule. Like, you know, if this is something, you know, doesn't look right or it's not what I grew up with or it doesn't sound right. And, and it's important to know with the Hawaiian pizza that Hawaiian pizza didn't come from Hawaii. It started in Canada with a guy who had worked in Chinese restaurants and Ameri- uh, 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 a, not a Chinese guy, but, you know, just a Halley who was working in, uh, in, in a uh, restaurant and had his own and he liked the the uh, Asian method of uh, sweet and spicy and sweet and savory that combination and he was making pizzas in his restaurant and he decided to try to use that principle and so he married pineapple with uh, Canadian bacon as the sweet savory blend and he and, and but because of the, the pineapple he just gave it the name Hawaiian pizza and it became popular and it, it, and it, it caught on. And so a lot of people thought it came out from Hawaii and it's, you know, some kind of a bastardization or something. It was just using the principles that we were just talking about of re- realizing the pizza is just a flavor delivery system. And the, and the winner is the guy who can deliver the most flavor to the customer. And, um, and so I had, you know, there's a, all these rules that the uh, pizza makers have about what you can and can't do in Italy. There's the Neapolitan uh, VPN rules where you have to use uh, their flour. It has to be using tomatoes that were grown in, uh, in, the, in the soil of Mount Vesuvius, you know, San Marzano tomatoes. You have to use pure buffalo mozzarella. I mean, and these are the rules if you want to call your pizza a true Neapolitan uh, pizza. So we call those, I call those the, uh, the, the pizza police rules because they are the rules have a valid purpose to protect and preserve a methodology that could be totally lost if you don't have a sort of a standard uh, template for it. I, I get that, but what happened was, was a lot of pizzerias were opening in the United States and people were getting certified in the VPN system, and they would make a big fuss about. It. And we even bring, you know we bring our flour over from Italy and blah blah blah, and the pizzas were not memorable. They were just okay. They were good pizzas because the people were making them had not mastered the craft of making pizzas yet. There's only a few people in the United States that make a killer Neapolitan pizza at the same level that you could get in Naples. Uh, one of them is uh, Spacanopoli in Chicago, for instance. The guy is committed, totally passionate about it. There's places in New York City like Keste where the guy is from Naples. So he's doing the real, you know, the real deal. And there are a few other places that have committed. But most people just sort of did the, the quick American thing. You know, I, I read it. I see how to do it. I'm doing it, you know. And then they were surprised that people didn't fall in love with it the way they did with the Naples pizzas. So I decided that there's the, the, the pizza police rules, and then there is a higher rule. And I call the higher rule the flavor rule. And the flavor rule is flavor rules. And so when people write to me and say, can I do this on my pizza? Am I, is, am I allowed? You know, I like I like cheese on my, on my clam pizza, but in, they say in Italy that you can't put you know, fish and cheese together. So my question back to them is, is, does it work? Do you like it? Oh, yeah, I love it. Does it deliver flavor? Yeah. I said, well, then let's appeal to the higher rule, the flavor rule, and we'll walk away from the pizza police rule. 
and just do it because it meets the criteria of the flavor rule, that is, flavor rules. And that's been governing me ever since. So I don't think there's hardly anything you can't do on a pizza unless it violates the flavor rule. So if you put ingredients that don't work, it won't take you long to figure that out. You try to make a peanut butter and jelly pizza and the jelly all runs off the pizza and, you know, and it burns. And you know that you violated some rules there. You know, Would the flavors work? Maybe they would, but maybe not in that form. So so the, the Hawaiian pizza, I think, uh, you know, there's some versions of it out there now. Nancy Silverton does one at Pizzeria Moza in L.A., which is probably one of the top three pizzerias in America, in my opinion. Um, and and we did it. I, I did a video with her on my website, Pizza Quest, where we actually show her show us eating her her uh, her version of the Hawaiian pizza. And it is so beautiful and so artistically done. And the quality of the meat and the quality of and, and she's using fresh pineapple that she's carved herself. And I mean, it's. It's on a different level. So you eat that and you go, I don't care if everybody thinks I'm crazy, you know, or, and the people who don't like Hawaiian pizza are going to vilify me. This pizza is so good. I'll, I'll stand and, and defend it. You know, I'm going to, I've got its back, you know, and that's how I feel about uh, a lot of things. So it really comes down to execution and quality and flavor more than it is to sort of rules. So I'm trying to think if there's any other sort of specific things that I wouldn't put. I don't have really a list of things that I say you can't do on a pizza because I think you have to try it. Well, one more thing on that, Wolfgang Puck about 35 years ago at Spago introduced the idea of sort of a global pizza. Uh, and every night he had a, a wonderful pizza maker there named Ed Ledoux, who uh, just had grasped intuitively that that pizza was just dough with something on it. So why does the something on it have to be Italian? Why can't it be Asian? Why can't it be South American? Why can't it be stuffed fresh from the farmer's market? And every day he'd go to the market and see what the, the fresh ingredients were. And he'd create toppings and put on the menu two pizzas that night at Spago, which was a high-end restaurant. And pizzas were a starter course. But it, it, it kind of helped put Spago on the map. These pizzas were so – they were like breakthrough pizzas because he was putting flavors on top, on top of a very good crust that really got people excited. And um, by the time he left Spago to open his own pizzeria, uh, Ed had also worked for California Pizza Kitchen and developed pizzas for them. He had developed over 250 different kinds of pizzas, pizza topping ideas, you know, and was continuing, you know, um, and then unfortunately, he, he sadly died at a young age before he had a chance to kind of like go all the way and f fulfill, you know, probably had a thousand different pizzas in him that he could have done. But but it goes back to that principle of um uh, dough with something on it does not have to be specifically Italian or be owned. Uh, pizzas exist in every culture under different names. You know, in India, they have naan bread, right? What is naan bread? It's dough and usually with some garlic butter or some onion stuff, you know, it can have stuff in it or on top of it, fold it over. It's basically Indian pizza. Um, a quesadilla is a Tex-Mex pizza. A grilled cheese sandwich is, in a sense, kind of like a variation of a pizza. That's a sandwich, which is a cousin of a pizza. Instead of dough with something on it, it's dough with something in it. But a grilled cheese sandwich is about as close to a Detroit pizza as you know as you're going to get, uh, if, unless you make a Detroit pizza yourself. So I think that uh, the flavor rule can help to help us steer through uh, the the question of what you can't do on a pizza. I think that's a spectacular answer. Cool. <laughs> I'm proud of that idea of the flavor rule. I, I should probably trademark. No, it's it's a really good idea. And one of the so one of the things you did bring up, and I want I want to just talk on this one more point because we've talked a little bit about um, making home bakers give no not making uh, giving home bakers an opportunity and home cooks a chance for success because I 
I, anybody who's baking and cooking at home wants the thing they're making or baking to come out well. I mean, that just is obvious. So there are, so anybody who writes a cookbook is setting down some set of rules. And the person who doesn't know anything about this craft is going to read the recipe and say, these are the rules. And so if I were to take up woodworking, which I understand right. is to transform this piece of wood into something gorgeous, well, I'm, I'm not going to do good at it because I, I, that's just not my thing. So I, I, I recognize the feeling of um, subordination to the words on a page, but fundamentally, it's words on a page. We assume that the person who wrote them knows what he or she is doing, and in some cases, cookbook authors don't know what they're doing. So that's one of the, that's one of the places where failure happens, is somebody follows a recipe, the recipe was bad to begin with, and they'll see, I told you I can't cook. So we have the Neapolitans and these very strict rules about you can't, do, it must have this potato or this tomato growing on the west side of the mountain, picked up the full moon on the side like, shut up. So yeah, right. there's, there's a lot of fear of failure in home yeah. cooks and bakers. And yeah. what's what suggestions, what advice do you have for people listening to suspend that trepidation and dive in? How can we what what words of advice to as much as we can as much as we can control it can we give people f- to ensure they can succeed? Well, that's that's a good question. Um I think that number one, you know, cooking uh, of any type, baking, cooking, making pizzas, um, you know, you can say that uh, all of these fall in a category that we could call craft. It's a craft and um, woodworking. They're all crafts and craft, getting good at craft does require repetition, does require practice, and it does require mastering guidelines and principles and, and uh, instructions. Uh, before you can go out and improvise and do all sorts of, you know, unique uh, uh, sort of out-of-the-box ideas, you need to know how to work within the box. And and it's not because there's anything wrong with being creative. It's that until you've mastered the craft itself, it's hard to know. It's hard to go beyond it. It's hard to transcend the craft if you, if you haven't yet mastered it. So the first thing is to always, you know, always know that failure is is part of the learning process. And and so you always get a redo. That's the nice thing about cooking is the next day you can do it again. Um, bread making is a very cheap way of getting into it because it's much less expensive than cooking with steak and foie gras and all sorts of fancy ingredients. Um, so, but, but until you've failed a few times, you really haven't really succeeded because you don't know what the parameters and the boundaries can be. So, um, so yeah, so uh, Tony Gemignani, who is uh, the owner of some amazingly popular pizzerias around the country. Um, and he's kind of, a, he's the world champion. He's probably America's, the Mozart of pizza, I call him, uh, who can work in any style of pizza. His pizzeria in San Francisco called Tony's uh, Pizzeria, uh, Tony's, um, Tony's, uh, Tony's ne- Neapolitan Pizza or something like that. Um, he's got places in Las Vegas called Pizza Rock and he's opening pizzerias all over the place. Uh, and, uh, we did some videos with them, and on the pizza box itself, if you just you know want to take a pizza home with you or take your leftovers home in a box, printed on the box, it has the words "respect the craft." He said that's his mantra: respect the craft. He spent years and years d- 
developing and perfecting his craft. And he does trade and he has a school and he teaches people, you know, how to make pizzas. He says, but you have to be willing to, you know, pay the, pay the price, dude, pay the, your dues in learning the craft itself. And some people learn it faster than others, but if you stick with it, you can always learn it. So uh, that's number one is just stick with it and realize, yes, the guidelines and the recipes are structure to help you get to the point where you can do things without using the recipes. A lot of people were born in Italy. They don't need recipes to cook. They grew up learning how to cook. They know how to, if they see 12 ingredients, they know how to turn them into something really good. But most people who are learning how to cook need to follow the instructions because they'll get you there. And, um, and then at a certain point, you can maybe let go of that. You don't have to be rigidly tied to them. Uh, people who are so tied to their recipes that they can't entertain the idea of a little tweak here and there, then they become, uh, what's the word, uh, dogmatic, dogmatic cooks to where they, you know, they, they can't, they're, they're not free to enjoy the spirit of cooking because they're so tied to the dogma of cooking. And so, but, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's practice, but it's not, it's not a long learning curve. It's just doing it, you know, a few times few times a week and before you know within a couple of weeks you know you suddenly you're in a different place so don't be afraid of failure um don't throw away your failures necessarily not everything is inedible if you've, if you've ruined it if you burned it or if put way too much salt you may have to toss it but you know a lot of those things can be salvaged um but if not you know then just start again and just chalk it up to a learning lesson um what was it wasn't it uh, edison who said that the uh, it took him over a thousand tries to get the light bulb and to and and when they asked him if he was discouraged he said no i just each time i just told myself that uh you know that i know one more way of how not to make the light bulb you know until I, and he knew he was going to get there eventually so okay so that's number one and number two is uh you know read recipes uh thoroughly so if you know how to cook a little bit they're the most dangerous ones are the people who do know how to cook a little bit and they look at a recipe and they don't really read it carefully and they just kind of scan and go oh i got it i can do it and they may be missing an important instruction in the recipe so read the recipe and then the final thing i would advise and this is what every culinary student at my school at johnson and wales as well as any culinary school the first thing they learn is the principle of mise en place which means everything in its place um and that means, you know, weigh or scale your ingredients, organize your work area, and get really organized. Mise en place really just means get organized. And I think that the way to do that is first read the recipe all the way through, then gather your ingredients, set them up, and then, you know, then begin the process rather than just diving in and then going, oh, yeah, where's that, where's that garlic powder? Or where did I put the oregano? You know, get everything out there when you first start, and you'll be much more organized and make less errors. And be faster. Uh, yes. Yes, exactly. Well, that was probably the answer I would have given, but it has more weight coming from you. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a cook, you know, you know, you know, you know, the same things that I know, which is, you know, it all starts with mise en place, you know, in the, in, it does. in cooking. Yeah. Well, and so, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to contribute to that, that there are two kinds of mise en place, mise en place of the physical stuff and mise en place of the thoughts. You have to have your mind in order to have your ingredients in order. Yes, well said. Uh, and I, you know, and, and I'm glad you said that because, uh, again, there is the physical mise en place. But, but but if you haven't if if you haven't focused yourself, if your mind is scattered all over the place, then uh, 
you know, cannot succeed. Yeah, that's a the re- that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. True enough. All right. Well, since this is a cooking show, the last part is a short answer question, sort of like they do on inside the actor's studio. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> so I've changed the questions because, but it's still in the same style. Uh, of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Sour. What's your favorite food? Uh, probably, well, I would say a Caesar salad is my single favorite dish. What's your least favorite food? Um, I've had less of them. I, it used to be beets. But now I've learned to love beets. So I'm trying to, if I have a least favorite, favorite food, overcooked green beans. Oh, okay. What gets you excited? The discovery process. Uh, and, and well, I'll just call it that the discovery process when it comes to cooking. Hmm. What turns you off? People who are know-it-alls. What sound do you love? The sound of crust. Yes. It was, I expected <laughs> that. I really did. I'm glad you did this. That was, a, that was a, a, a lob, a softball lob. Yeah. It, well, well, in your case, it was. Yeah. Uh, what sound do you hate? Um, I guess, uh, well, it's not a sound. It's a, it's a phrase. Um, I can't do this. Oh, no, I'll, wait, let me get, uh, qualify that. What sound do I hate the most? Whining. The sound of whining. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, what is your favorite food indulgence? Hmm. Uh, I think it's a good question. It changes all the time. I'll say um, chocolate, chocolate and cherries together. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. Nicely. Well played. I have to sneak that one in. Uh, everyone, no one's looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, thank you very much for making time to come on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast today. Well, Dan, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, and I uh, hope we have a chance to continue the conversation in the future. I do, too. So the book we talked about is your book, Perfect Pan Pizza, and I'll have a link for that on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 38. Do you have a social media presence or a website you want to give to people to follow you? Yeah, I would love for folks to check out my my own website, pizzaquest.com. You can just go to pizzaquest.com and it'll lead you to the site. And we've got videos where I've interviewed and, and uh, done demos with uh, world-famous pizza makers, including Nancy Silverton and Tony Gemignani. And we do uh, guest columns and all sorts of cool things. Uh, and it's even though it's called Pizza Quest, um, the, the sub name of the sort of the, the catchphrase is, um, a journey of self-discovery through pizza. So I'd love for people to check it out. Well, that has become kind of a theme from, because it says self-discovery in the subtitle, our bread upon the waters, right. uh, brother Juniper's slow rise of the person and the bread. So it, it seems you have very well found your niche in the world and, like I said, I've been a big fan, and we just got to work on that semolina bread. <laughs> well, let's let's work on that one together, uh, and because uh, I want I want to hear that uh, that wow uh, moment from you when we nail it. There was one, and I'm looking for it, and I can't find it, of course, because I want to find it. There was something else. It was a, I, I think I tried the strewn once at uh, the Tallahassee restaurant, but we made another one. It was kind of sweet, molassesy, maybe. Well, there's one I don't use molasses in strum, although you could. But I, but the one that I use molasses in is the Anadama bread. That's the one. Man, is that good? Yeah, that, <laughs> oh. that's good. Yeah. 
And that's a traditional bread. I mean, it's my version, but it's it's really a, a East Coast, a New England bread. Everyone who that, tried uh, it was they they took a bite and they stopped and they was like big eyed and they go, Oh my gosh. Oh, love it. Glad to hear that. Oh, it was it was a big, big hit. So yeah, that was good. Well, well, thank you so much. And just uh, some of the things you've said today, uh, you know, about uh, not only the breads, but how some of these uh, these words have have touched you mean a lot to me hearing it. And it makes me feel like uh, like uh, it was worth the effort to to, you know, to sit, sit there at the keyboard and and write them out. Well, I'm I'm glad you did. I, I feel uh, a better person for it. So thank you so much, Dan. Onward. Well, how about, I, how about if I close with uh, what I call the Baker's Blessing, which I often sign when people ask me to sign their book. I write this, what I call the Baker's Blessing, which I made up, of course. There's no, it's not the Baker's Blessing, but I, since I'm a baker and I, and I, and I, and I can give blessings, I came up with one and it is, uh, may your crust be crisp and your bread always rise. Amen. Lovely. Well, that's a great way to close. Thanks. All right, folks, that's going to do it. You can find a link to the Perfect Pan Pizza book as well as Peter's other books I mentioned at the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 38, as well as links to the affiliates mentioned and an Amazon page for Detroit Pan Pizza Gear. After you've listened to all the Culinary Libertarian podcasts, you'll be wanting more podcasts. I on 2020 podcast found on the iontheempire.com webpage is a libertarian podcast to show the principles of liberty and how liberty and less, at least, government is more empowering than more government. Check out I on 2020, a podcast on Anchor, and let host Ray Eden share his insights with you. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matt Bankert at DIY Rock and Roll. Click over to mattbankert.com or click the link on the show notes page.